Alrighty, folks, we've been in Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is stock full of wisdom. And the Hebrew concept of wisdom, I think you know by now, has nothing to do with IQ. It has to do with skillfulness in living life. We're alive, thank God. We might as well be uh, more than amateurs in living life. We might as well become professionals, more skillful in living life. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. I'll tell you about someone who's not some wise. There was a man, this is a true story, uh, who in Providence, Rhode Island, not too long ago, um, knocked an armored car driver over the head in an attempt to steal the money contained in this armored car. And there were several bags filled with currency. And this man decided, he thought this would be wise, to, 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 to lay hold of the bag that was closest to him so he could make a quick getaway. But in it were hundreds and hundreds of dollars um, of money in pennies, in pennies. So, so he grabbed onto this thing, and because of its weight, he couldn't make a quick getaway, and before you know it, the... Uh, the police laid hold of him and arrested him. So, so folks, at the least, uh, I think we can guarantee that our study in Proverbs will help us to be, at the least, wiser than that guy. So let's look at Proverbs tonight and see what it has to say. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 3, uh, just two verses. And let me just warn you at the outset, they're about money. They're about money. Stay where you are. Nobody leaves. We've locked the doors. Listen, if you're visiting with us tonight, thank you for coming, and I may have just confirmed your suspicion, and that is that all those church people talk about all the time is money. Well, you're not exactly right. We don't talk about money all the time. In fact, this is a more true statement. Most churches don't speak about money matters enough. Here's what I mean. If we wanted to follow the emphasis on money, Uh, uh, put on it by the Lord Jesus, think about this, the average pastor would be preaching about money matters at the least eight Sundays out of the 52 Sundays every month. Because if you look to the Gospels and see what the Lord had to say about money, you will find out uh, that about 15% of all of his teaching has to do with money matters. So what's more likely than the criticism that we talk about money too much is that we probably don't talk about it enough. The Bible has about 500 references to prayer and just about 500 references to faith, but there are over 2,000 references to money and material possessions in the Bible. The Gospels record, depending on how you count, uh, approximately 38 parables of the Lord, and 16 of those 38 parables have to do with how we handle our money. Jesus said more about money and possessions than about the subjects of heaven and hell combined. I suppose he did so because he knew our attitudes towards money are a very clear reflection of our attitude towards God. So that having been said, I hope you're persuaded to sit tight and and hear out not what I have to say, but what Solomon the writer of Proverbs and the wisest man ever to have lived has to say about money. So take a look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. We're just going to look at two verses tonight. Proverbs 3, uh, verse 9. By the way, can you see this thing right here? I mean, how can you not see this thing right here? Um, my wife. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> okay, so here's what it says. 
Verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. See the word honor? It literally means heavy or weighty. That's what it means. Folks, it's a very weighty manner uh, to honor the God who carries such weight with us. We are to be diligent to honor this weighty God in all ways, including in the way we handle our money. So the text says, honor him from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Remember, this verse was written to an agricultural society. Uh, their income was in the form of uh, crops and uh, fruit and that sort of thing. And they were commanded uh, to honor the Lord from the first of all their produce. When their fields were harvested, the farmer was told uh, by Moses under God's inspiration to give God the first which also happened to be the best of whatever they produced. And so we read this in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. It says, you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. So the law of Moses required those folks uh, to give their first fruits, the best part of their harvest. And in so doing, that portion was an indication that it all belonged to God. It's the part representing the whole. And they acknowledged in giving God the best of their harvest that he's the God of the harvest and that without him there'd be no harvest at all. In fact, there was an Old Testament holiday. Perhaps you're familiar with it. It's called the Feast of First Fruits. It's spoken about in Leviticus chapter 23. I'll read you a few verses, 9 to 11. Then... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so what the priest would do would take a sheaf, uh, from the produce, and he would wave it literally in all directions. He would wave it, wave it north to south and east to west, and he would repeatedly do this with this sheaf, this agricultural product. And in so doing, as a symbol, he'd be communicating to everyone, God has sovereignty over the entirety of the universe. The world is his. In any direction you go, plant, harvest a crop, it's all due to almighty sovereign God. His hand is on everything. From his hand is everything we have received. And so the folks then would be moved to give the best of what they had to this great, sovereign, and almighty God. And in so doing, even in difficult times, when they gave the first of their produce, they essentially would be honoring God by saying, no matter what, oh God, we have confidence in you to provide for our needs. And not only God, that, oh God, we want a means of showing gratitude to you for giving us all that we have. And so that's what they would do. Their giving, our giving, is an act of faith. 
It's an act of faith. Because when we give from the first fruits, our income is dollars. It's not, not grain. It's not, it's, it's not agricultural. Uh, but the principle remains the same. When we give from the first fruits of whatever our income is, when we give off the top, not out of the leftovers, it's an act of faith and confidence in God. And that act of faith and confidence in him is what brings honor and glory to his name. So that being said, let me j- just say a few words about this question. How much should you give? Let's, let's, get, let's get blatantly practical here. How much should you give? Now, I'm a person who does not believe the New Testament stipulates a particular percentage uh, of giving. Now, you may differ from me, and it's okay. We're, we're free to differ. I'm just trying to make a statement that it could get me in trouble, but eh, you know what I'm saying? Why not? Uh, the tithe, which was introduced in the Old Testament, I can't find it repeated in the New Testament. I see it mentioned, but only in a negative sense. It's when the Lord rebuked his own, my own, Jewish religious leaders, and he said to them, you tithe, but you violate all kinds of stuff. That's the only context in which I could see the tithe. So before you get upset with me, um, just search the scriptures. I may be right. Now, I didn't say <laughs> the New Testament doesn't teach biblical giving. I'm just telling you, I don't see the tithe. Now, don't misunderstand that tithe, 10% is what it means. That's a wonderful guideline. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I, I just don't think it's obligatory. I don't think it's made a matter of law as it was in the Old Testament. Why have things changed if God is the same? Folks, surely you realize the New Testament is different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was given to Jewish people. The tithe was part of the law of Moses. The tithe was not given to the church. Giving was given to the church. So you know what the New Testament says about how much you should give? Nothing. (laughs) It doesn't say a specific percentage. Again, you may be offended by what I said because you may say, I've never heard that said before. Yeah, but that doesn't make it wrong. Check out the scriptures for yourself. Let me know. If I'm wrong, I'll I'll apologize. I have to do that often. It wouldn't be a new thing. But I think I'm right in this case. So if the New Testament doesn't stipulate a specific percentage, what does it do? It doesn't talk about the amount of our giving. It talks about the attitude of our giving. So I can demonstrate to you for sure in the New Testament that the kind of giving God is looking for is generous giving and willing giving and regular giving giving. That's what he's looking for in the New Testament. So in answering the question, how much should I give, could I suggest to you two other questions that have been helpful to me? Maybe they'll be helpful to you. Here's the first. How much do I have? It's just a matter of practice and logic. You can't give what you don't have. So you should ask the question, how much do I have? This is a biblical principle, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness, that is to say the readiness to give, is present, it's acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. So you don't have to be under any pressure to keep up with the person next to you in giving. In fact, it's a matter between you and the Lord. So so this is a good question. How much do I have? And by the way, what we have in terms of income, it varies, doesn't it, from time to time? 
And God is only looking to us with a willing heart to give out of what he has supplied for us. And that changes from time to time. So that's the first question, how much do I have? Second, how thankful am I? Because that's the only acceptable motive for giving. Gratitude to God who gives us everything. How thankful am I? So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, let each of you do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a, what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. Not a, not, not a giver who feels compelled to give. Not a mechanical, non-thinking giver. A giver who is so in love with the God who outloves us, who outgives us, who outgraces us, who shows us mercy beyond what we deserve. The attitude behind giving is how thankful am I? If I didn't have a concrete means of saying thank you, God, like giving, I'd explode, wouldn't you? I mean, what do you give God who has everything? It's not about the amount of money. It's the heart behind it. And so giving always has to be in connection to a thankful heart. So I find those two questions to be helpful to me in determining what my giving program is. How much do I have and how thankful am I to the Lord? So that question being somewhat dealt with, how about this question? Uh, Who should you give to? Uh, I think, as a matter of first priority, you should give to the church you belong to or most regularly attend. Um, I, I could show you some scripture on this, but I decided not to for this reason. You shouldn't need scripture. It's just a matter of common sense. If you're in a local assembly and you're receiving from it spiritual gain and benefit, the biblical principle is (laughs) return materially. That's the place you give priority support to. I think about myself here. This happens to be the church I'm a member of. This is family. Family is priority, folks. So you give to your church family first. This church is one in which my three sons have been raised one in which my three sons met their wives to whom they are married to, one in which my wife gets to serve, one in which I get to serve, one in which we get to receive unbelievable blessing and helps and encouragement and all the rest. It just makes sense to us. Now, we have certain um, missionary uh, interests that we support in addition to and above and beyond what we give to the local church. But folks, I, I, I suppose you're like me. I receive requests for uh, giving, uh, you know, dozens every week. And frankly, most of them are really, really good causes. It can drive you crazy. It just helps me to know my priority giving is going to be to the family God has put me in. Look, all giving is to God, is it not? And if you believe that God has led you to this place, (laughs) then you ought to give to the place that God has led you to. Otherwise, you don't really mean it. Now, if you're in a place and you cannot, a local church, and you cannot in clear conscience and with conviction and passion give to it, I suggest you look for another place. That place is not meeting your needs or or maybe the problem is yours and no place is going to. I don't want to step on 
Yeah, I do. Maybe the problem is yours, and no place is going to meet your needs because you have unrealistic expectations. But if you're a reasonable person, for crying out loud, and you're in a place where you bring people to, you're not ashamed to invite them to functions, you, you, you believe in its doctrinal perspective and all the rest, and it's an atmosphere conducive to your spiritual growth, that's the place, that's the local church that you ought to give to as a priority. That's, that's just what it seems to me. Now, here's something else to consider with regard to who do you give to. Um, even if you've already settled the matter and you want to honor God with your giving, uh, that's not enough. You still have to work hard at being wise about your giving because unwise giving does not honor God. So let me highlight this point by sharing this with you. A study was done a long time ago, but it's still relevant, in 1986. And it was done by a man named Robert Polk, who was then the director of the cooperative program for the Baptist General Convection, uh, Convention of good old Texas right here. And he decided to analyze the expenditures, income, and income of six major television ministries and, and then compare the income and expenditures of those ministries on television with the income and expenditures of the Southern Baptist Convention. So he found out that $684 million was given to these six leading television ministers, and this is how it was used. It was used to pay for their TV time and to support four schools, one hospital, three churches, two ministries to needy children, one ministry to others in need, and one home for unwed mothers. Good things. And then when he compared the $640 of income given to television ministers. He compared it to the $635 million, a lesser amount uh, of income given to the Southern Baptist Convention, and this is how it was used. It was used to support 52 children's homes, 48 hospitals, including 23 overseas, 67 colleges and universities, 33 nursing homes, 3,756 foreign missionaries, 3,637 missionaries on the home front, ministries to students on 1,100 campuses, and six seminaries. Folks, the contrast was startling. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm a Southern Baptist is uh, God in his grace led me to it, but the other reason is our fantastic cooperative program and how it is expended. It is magnificent. So I bring this up just to say, it is not God honoring giving if it is foolish giving. So once you determine to give, your job is not over. You better check out the recipient, the potential recipient of your giving to make sure you know how the money is being used. Okay, so then, verse nine. Thank you, one amen. Really appreciate that. I'll pay you later. Are you worthy of some giving? I'll give you Okay, so verse 9 says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And now verse 10, look it. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So, is this the real reason for giving? Do we give 
in order to get? Uh, the answer is no, we don't. We do not give our money to God thinking in so doing we will obligate him to give good things back to us. Now it is true that God gives plenty of good things, but the only way to receive God's good gifts is by God's grace. Therefore, if we give to get, you know what we're doing? We are sinning against grace. Very serious. Now there's a lot of this going on today. Uh, there are a number of false teachers, um, even on TV, uh, who, um, who suggest that the primary reason for giving is this very thing, to get. And usually they do so by encouraging the listener uh, to sow financial seed uh, into their ministry. Sow financial seed into the ministry so that you can then reap a financial harvest in your own life. But is this right? Is this biblical? Is this the primary reason for giving? Do we give so that we can get? No. The answer is a resounding no. And here's the reason why. Folks, nothing God has to give is for sale. That's not the way it works. It is all of grace, every bit of it. So if we don't give to get, then why give at all? We give to honor God. That's the reason. We give to honor God. So am I saying there's no blessing that accrues to the account of the giver? I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is we give in response to blessing, not to get blessing. Do you see what I'm saying? Giving is a way of thanking God for what he has already given us. Now, I want to tell you this. This is a little bit theological, but uh, hang in there with me. Uh, the Old Testament is the first part of the Bible, right? And the New Testament Come, it follows the Old Testament. It's not just in that order in the Bible. It, it follows that way for this reason. When you start back here in the Old Testament, first book, Genesis, God in, in embryonic form is introducing cosmic, ultimate, magnificent spiritual truths. But he's doing it as if we're infants. And so he teaches us, beginning in the Old Testament, using very, very concrete examples. And then as you keep moving through the Bible and find your way to the New Testament, there's something called progressive revelation. It's all revealed by God, Genesis to Revelation. But the revelation of God, progressive, meaning since he's the master teacher, he teaches new things on the foundation of old and familiar things. So that when you get to the New Testament... You don't need the concrete examples in the Old Testament. You see the realities in the New. Let me illustrate. The Old Testament speaks of the construction of a temple. You know about this? God told Moses from Mount Sinai. He didn't only give him the Ten Commandments. He gave him director, directions to construct a building, the temple. And God said, that's where the people will meet with me. I'll establish my, my presence there. And you have to come there and, and uh, you know, make sure you're in good shape and spiritually and all the rest. But when you get to the New Testament, you find out that it isn't about a building where we meet with God, is it? It's in you because the Bible says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now that concept is not introduced in the Old Testament. 
What's introduced in the Old Testament is the notion of a physical material place, a temple where you meet with God. Now God builds on that as Revelation progresses, takes us to the New Testament and says, you know that meeting place in the Old Testament where folks had to come to meet with God? You don't have to go up to Jerusalem to meet with God there. You don't have to wait for Saturday. When you accept the Lord Jesus into your life, he sends his spirit. He's with you all the time. Therefore, you are the temple. You are to be a holy place, a housing for Almighty God. Can you see what I mean? So you have concrete example in the old, and it moves to its fulfillment in the new. Another example. The Old Testament speaks about fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath day. As a Jewish guy, I'm asked by a lot of people, why don't I observe the Sabbath? Well, I do observe the Sabbath, but not as a day. I'll tell you what I mean. Here in the Old Testament, God gave the Sabbath. It's a gift. You know why? The Israelites were slave people. The Sabbath was permission to take a day off. Slaves don't, have, slaves don't get a day off. Are you kidding me? The Sabbath is God saying, I'm the master. You will rest on this day. It was a magnificent thing. It's a gift. Now, when you move to the New Testament, did you know the fourth commandment is the only one of the ten that's not repeated in the New Testament? It's not repeated in the New Testament. It's not that the Sabbath isn't mentioned. It's mentioned in Hebrews where it says, labor. Work hard to enter into Sabbath rest. Look, the slaves here were given permission to take a literal day off. We have become slaves to sin. But when Jesus, the master, set us free from sin, he now said, you have permission to rest. I've finished redemption for you. You don't have to work to earn my favor, to earn salvation. I give it to you freely. So now you have to work really hard at entering into Sabbath rest. It's not a day. It's a lifestyle. But the notion of rest as a lifestyle is built on the foundation of the very concrete, literal Sabbath day of rest. There's a million such things. That's movement from old to new. Now, why do I bring this up? If you look back at verse 10, you see where it's talking about literal material prosperity, barns filled with plenty, vats overflowing with new wine. Um, you cannot show me one promise of material prosperity, financial prosperity in the New Testament. I dare you. You cannot show me one. So what then is this saying? This is saying that God intends, when you trust him, he intends to meet all of your needs, but your most fundamental needs are spiritual, not material. So, so listen to this verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, listen, with every spirit, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It doesn't say material blessing. I didn't say God is uninterested in our material needs. I'm just saying he wants to give us his best, not his second best. So he wants to give us things fit for eternity. So he has put in the package all of the great gifts of heaven, and he has put them in 
It's a one-stop shopping center. He put them in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we accept him, it says God has chosen to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the equivalent of barns filled to overflow and vats bursting with wine is that God will meet your spiritual needs by giving gifts of the Holy Spirit like love, joy, Peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. Folks, aren't those more valuable commodities even than financial wealth? You, as well as I, know of key sad examples of people who have acquired massive amounts of money, whether they be athletes or Hollywood personalities, and so many are unhappy and in disarray and out of control. They don't have the riches of the restraint of the Holy Spirit. They don't have self-control. Folks, you know and I know that some of the happiest, most peaceful, and fruitful believers in the world have very little sometimes of the Lord's material goods. That surely cannot be taken. The absence of material wealth surely cannot be taken as a sign of God's displeasure. Nor can the presence of material wealth be taken as a sure indication of God's reward. Not at all. Not at all. Folks, spiritual blessing is what God wants to give us today. And sometimes... He'll look to the very faithful giver and say, what's best for you at this time is unemployment. What's best for you this time is a downturn in your personal stock portfolio. What's best for you this time is to taste a, a little poverty. Because what's best for you is to find me to be sufficient. What's best for you is for you to have an enhanced sense of dependence on me. What's best for you is for you and your family to draw together, closer together in this than ever before. What's best for you is for you to stop just praying to me before meals. What's best for you is to romance me, to talk to me all through the day about all things. What's best for you is to no longer leave me out. You need me, and I'm ready to meet your needs. Now, folks, when you find God to be the all-sufficient one, when you find God to be the all-sufficient one at those times, you can't put a price on that. Those are the things that go with us to eternity. All the rest are subject to thievery, <laughs> inflation, and they're all only temporal, only temporal. So the metaphor of barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine simply means I will super abundantly meet your most fundamental needs. You need not be a spiritually impoverished beggar. You can be filled to overflow with my spirit in spite of what's going on circumstantially in terms of your finances. If you find me to be the father you can depend on, you have found all you need. You see what I mean? So, so it's when people... Uh, uh, miss this little theological, it's an interpretive lesson. When they go into the Old Testament and see the material promises 
and carry them into the day when the New Testament doesn't even give you one promise of material gain. You're missing the point. God starts, don't you do this with young people, like with children and grandchildren? Don't you start teaching them uh, anything in a very concrete, sort of simple way, then you build on it, and as they mature, these things are not for naught, but you build on it, you build on it. That's what God, our Father, has done. When you go from the Old Testament and move on through to the New Testament, you are moving on to maturity. So I didn't say disregard the Old Testament. I'm just saying uh, uh, treat it as something we've moved past, folks. We're moving on to the reality. Look, Colossians 2. 16, uh, Paul wrote it. He said, don't let anyone judge you with regard to Sabbath observance or new moon festivals, stuff like that. You know what he says? These things are a mere shadow. The substance is Christ. So that means you go back to the Old Testament. You take all of the feasts of Israel, you know, Passover and Hanukkah and first fruits and unleavened bread and all that kind of stuff, all new moon observances and stuff like that. You could observe them if you want. It's a free country. But the way you really observe them is to let all those point to you to the ultimate fulfillment who is Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our Passover lamb. All of the Old Testament feasts are celebrated when you celebrate your redemption in Christ Jesus. I didn't say that. Paul said it. Check it out. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. It's in the Bible. All right. So there you go. Um, so we've spoken about money tonight. I hope it hasn't offended you. But if it has, we may have identified a problem you have. Uh, so let me use this illustration. It, this is not, uh, did not originate with me. But it's a good illustration. You go to a doctor for a checkup. He pokes you here, he prods you there. And while he's doing it, he's saying, does this hurt? Does that hurt? If you cry out in pain, you say that hurts. He says, ah, we may have found something wrong with you. And, and he might say, we have to run some more tests because you're not supposed to hurt there. Folks, uh, messages about giving are not supposed to hurt. They're not supposed to offend you. If they hurt you, if they offend you, we may have found something wrong with you. <clears throat> and maybe you, you have never really realized that God is not out to take your money. He's intent on giving to you, not taking from you. In fact, he so loved you that he gave finish it for me. His only not replaceable, one of a kind. And he did it so that if you would trust in him, he'd forgive your sins. Yeah. And he'd make you, he being your sin bearer, he'd make you an heir of eternal life. If you are offended by talk of giving, financial giving. If you are not a regular giver to God's work, perhaps you need to consider first accepting what God so sincerely wants to give to you. Forgiveness, 
Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to, here's the word, give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not boasting with arrogance here. Uh, I'm just sharing an experience. When I came to accept the inexpressible gift of a Savior bringing salvation, I didn't need a preacher to tell me to give to him. I wanted a means of saying thank you. I yearned for a concrete means of saying, I trust you. If you have entrusted your son to me, I can entrust my dollars to you. It wasn't a have to. I wasn't paying God for blessing. I wanted to thank God for his inexpressible gift. I find that those who have received God's inexpressible gift of salvation do not need very much preaching and very much prodding to honor him with the first fruits of their produce. This being the case, I beseech you. We've done maybe a little diagnostic work. If you're bothered by what I've been speaking about, I want to invite you to spend time with really good people who want to give you their time in the Connection Center. It's right behind us now. You can enter from either way you exit. Just turn inside. And there'll be people there. And you could express your offense or anger. You could say, I came to church and this guy's talking about money. That's really good. It's a free country. You can argue. You can do whatever you want. Or you could say, this Jesus who came to give me forgiveness, I want to know more about him because I stand in sore need of forgiveness. I can't get it right with God through my own efforts. What is this Sabbath rest? That little guy with the Band-Aid spoke about. That's in the Connection Center. I just encourage you to do so. In fact, could you stand to your feet now? We're going to take leave of uh, one another before we do. Let me just pray. Let me pray. Uh, don't, don't leave just yet. We're, we're, we're out of here in just a minute. But, but let's just pray. Let's just pray. While I lead us, can you pray that there be not one person who leave here tonight without considering accepting the inexpressible gift of the forgiveness which is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, Lord Jesus, look, we're bowing before you, not in fear, but in respect and awe, and we are so grateful. We're filled to overflow. What do we have? What good thing do we have that hasn't come from above? Oh, God, we owe you, but can never repay you, but we can say thank you. No, God, we can express confidence in you to provide for our needs, sometimes our needs being spiritual, much more than material. And oh, God, thank you for coming to solve our greatest problem. It's the sin problem. It separates us from you now and forever because you're without sin. It's like oil and water. They don't mix because you're intensely holy. But thank you for coming enfleshed to be a mediator and build a bridge between us sinners and you, a sinless Savior. No, God, I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit, that's how it has to happen, you would impress upon people even tonight distance from you if that's the way it is. 
and the possibility of leaving here in intimacy with you, with a load of sin left behind. I pray not one in that category would leave this place without pausing for conversation with folks who could help them. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.